Good morning. This morning I will be reading Deuteronomy 24, verse 5 through 25, verse 4. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife, whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care, in case of leprous disease, to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. For you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go out over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. This is the Lord of the Lord, word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Dylan, I'm one of the pastors here, thanks for joining us. Uh, as you know, and, and as we read through Deuteronomy, uh, we are committed to letting the whole counsel of the Word of God speak to us. We are convinced that all of it is God's Word and authoritative for us and points us to the greatness and the glory of Jesus. Uh, this morning is Deuteronomy 24 and 25, and you're beginning to see more and more how difficult it is to even pick what we're going to read uh, for our sample text for you guys. One author said this, that the Deuteronomist determination to legislate for the most bizarre circumstances is ultimately mystifying. And yet that's our task. Uh, 
the last several weeks is to look at some of these legislated circumstances that are very bizarre and know that they are mystifying and just readily admit that that's true and still try to make sense of not only what they were saying to their original audience, but, but what do these laws then have to say to, to us and how do they point us in the right direction? And the existence of some of the circumstances that we confront in the text and these scenarios that exist and are, are legislated and are talked about confront with the reality that as we get this people ready to move into the promised land as Moses is doing in Deuteronomy, that we are living in a very post-fall world. That we are living in a place that is full of the presence of sin, that is full of brokenness and its need needs some regulation and some governance because of the sinfulness in the world. But not just the sinfulness in the world. What's clear is that Moses is giving these laws and commands because of the brokenness and hardness that exists within the hearts of these people themselves. And the attempt here from this word, this merciful word from the Lord, is to help them in a post-fall world, a sinful, broken world with sinful, broken hearts to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love one another as they love themselves. These laws are given in part to restrain the evil that's in their midst and to address their hard hearts that are ever-present and going to be ever-present within the promised land. And so chapters 24 and 25 of Deuteronomy are laws that work for the care and protection of some broken situations. They work for the care and protection of, of some of the most vulnerable in their midst. And they, they call the people of God to uphold the right kind of things in their community. To uphold marriage. To uphold the dignity of humanity. And to uphold justice where utmost matters to them. Important matters for them and their functioning in the land. So in chapter 24, as Moses has just addressed false accusations against a uh, 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 people going on in their midst, and sexual morality and adultery just has addressed all that. He moves in chapter 24 to speaking of marriage and divorce. Look in verse 1 of tw chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house... And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends, out, sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin in upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. M Moses addresses... Some, some things that he assumes here, right? Like he's assuming that marriage and divorce are going on here. And apparently those things are permitted and even regulated. So in the promised land, again, the, the people of God, in the place of God, there's still a lot of brokenness that needs to be dealt with. Like they haven't arrived yet now that they've been pulled out of Egypt, gone through the wilderness, so we got a new generation, now we're ready to go into the promised land. It's not as if they've arrived and now they have nothing to work on and to address. We're firmly in a post-fall world. And this law is primarily concerned with after a divorce and giving certain protections for the parties after a divorce. A, a certificate of divorce is, is a given proof that this woman is now free to remarry because of what has happened in their marriage. In other words, it offers to this woman protection 
lest she be one who would be treated as more of an outcast or would be uh, one that wouldn't be up for remarriage in their community. And here's what he says to them, that there's no then remarriage after another remarriage. He says that would be an abomination. Now, hopefully part of what that does is gives someone who would give a certificate of divorce pause before they move in that direction to say, you need to make really sure that this is what you want to do because if it's just on a whim here, you're not going to be able to come back and circle around and do this again. And so he's hopefully giving some pause to divorce. Potentially that's part of what the law, but what is straightforward is what the, what this initiates is a divorce and what initiates divorce is not so straightforward. And you notice the description if he finds no favor, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, some indecency, that's about what we get to describe it. It's not spelled out for us. It's not adultery. We know that. We've, he's already covered some of the consequences for adultery within marriage. The, the penalty for adultery would be death to the adulterers. And so some, when they look at this, they stress the some portion of this some indecency. That would have been one of the prominent views in Jesus's own day. If you look in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees, they came up to him and they tested him. And here's what they ask. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There's the emphasis on the some indecency that they're giving there and they're promoting there. That is an actual view and was a prominent view of Jesus' time. They're saying, this is right. Is it, is it okay for any, any cause? Because that's a prominent view of the time and probably their view. But notice that it's still a question. Even, even the Pharisees at the time, a lot closer to what these laws would have been intended for and who they would have been intended for, still don't kind of have it all nailed down, do they? They're still questioning. Indeed, they're trying to even test Jesus and to put him in a, an untenable position with how he does this so that they can maybe bring some accusations against him with certain schools of thought. So it's still a question, and here's a view that's prominent, the any view. Now, one commentator says this. I think this helps us talk about what some indecency could be. says possibly what was in view is a variety of things a husband might have found objectionable, perhaps barrenness of the womb, some birth defect, Lewd, immoral behavior such as lesbianism, sexual misconduct, short of intercourse, or menstrual irregularity. All of those are on the table, but they're not clearly defined. Some indecency is not precisely known, but a certificate of divorce could be given in such a case. And it seems that it's not only permissible, but this is the way. If you're going to find some indecency and put her away, this is how you are to do it. Now, this must not be mistaken for a law commanding divorce or even, in fact, condoning divorce. What this law, do is merely, law does is merely regulate divorce. Jesus makes this clear in his response, doesn't he? To those who ask about divorce, can we divorce for any reason? Listen to Jesus' response. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus doesn't really give an interpretation, but he recenters the conversation, doesn't he? As he often does. He recenters the conversation, and he goes back. He takes them back, not to the law first. He goes back even further than that, and he looks at creation and the design that God had intended for marriage at the beginning. But Deuteronomy isn't speaking to the 
ideal of marriage, it's speaking to the brokenness of marriage, after the fall marriage, where all sorts of things are going on, where there's some indecency that's going on, and there's someone that sees that indecency and wants to then divorce from his wife. He's addressing those kind of situations where in the beginning it was not so. Deuteronomy speaks not to the ideal or to the design, God declares those at creation. That's what Jesus says. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's the ideal, that these two, two, one man, one woman, join together and they become one flesh, that they be now a new family. That's the therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to wife because of God's design and his goodness. One Flesh, oneness, unity is the goal, and that's to be the end. That's to be the, there's no dot, dot, dot after that oneness. There is a period there. That is what God intended for marriage. That conclusion then leads to this exhortation from Jesus in verse 6. He goes back further than the law, and he says, they shall become one flesh. And so he says this, so they are no, no longer two, but one flesh. And here's another, therefore, what therefore God has joined together let no man separate. That's the ideal. That's the design. He interprets it from the beginning. This is what it's to look like. This is what it's to be. Now, that's not to say that there's uh, no divorce at all, but he is telling them there's not just divorce for just any old reason because what God has done is put two together and made them one. God has joined them together, he says, and what God has joined, man is not to separate. So they're not to pull apart what God joins. And this leads to another question that helps pull back the curtain on Deuteronomy for us. If you look in how he's talking to them back and forth and they hear this explanation, they said, well, what are we to think about this then? Why did Moses then command, verse 7, one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And here's the answer that Jesus gives. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses Again, notice the words, allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. The law was given in Deuteronomy chapter 24 because of the hardness of hearts that were already present, right? The sin that had worked out in their own hearts and in the world. That's not to say, Jesus, I think here, is not saying that there may not be any reason for divorce. He addresses that in verse 9 of chapter 19. Not our intent to go into that here, but he, he doesn't say there's not any reason for divorce. But that's just a provision, not the design. That's what Jesus is pointing them to. Notice, they ask about Moses' command. Can we get a divorce for any, any cause? And Jesus speaks about what Moses allowed. And that matters. They're addressing again, like, here's our interpretation. Any cause? And, Moses, and Jesus is saying, Moses just put this in there, but that wasn't the design. This is allowed. It's regulated. But that wasn't the intent and the design from the beginning. Deuteronomy 24, then, is squarely shown to be a response to the hardness of their hearts, a response to sin. And so this Old Testament law on, on divorce, it, it diagnoses humanity. It's there because of the hardness of their hearts. And, and like the Pharisees, they have hard hearts in Deuteronomy. Pharisees have hard hearts, and we keep on going down the line. And we see rebellion to God every step of the, law, the way. But this law shows also the character of God. Because what does he do? He speaks into that rebellion. This is a God who's merciful and gracious, who's 
long-suffering. He's patient. He could, when sin enters, stamp it out completely, pour his judgment down upon their hard-hearted rebellion, but he doesn't. He speaks into it. He tries to curve their sin. One author says this, that the provision of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, was rather a mark of divine condescension. This is a God who condescends, who comes down and speaks to his people where they're at for their good and for his glory, even after they've roundly rejected him and given him the stiff arm and said, we'd rather do it our own way. He still condescends. He comes to them and speaks into that after rejecting his good design for marriage, the good design for one flesh. God makes provision to protect the most vulnerable when they move in their hard-hearted directions toward breaking up and pulling apart what God has joined together. He restricts in this law sin. He brings order to some of the disorder and chaos that is caused by marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is a God who is merciful. He condescends. And we know that he would condescend further for the good of his people too. Not just to speak into their brokenness, but to take it on himself. To, to leave the glory of heaven and to take on human flesh. To be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he would go even lower than just taking on flesh. He would go to the point of death, even death on a cross, where he's being accused by the very people he created of, of sin that he never committed by sinners. He condescends all the way to the cross. And what Romans 5 makes really clear to us is that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we're still sinners, he didn't wait for that to change and then come after us to rescue us. He knew that was never happening. He came to rescue us while we are still sinners. He says in Romans 5, while we are still enemies of God, and it's this kind of condescension that is a provision, not just for all the brokenness that exists interrelationally, he condescends to fix the brokenness that exists between man and God. This provision, this condescension is a provision for reconciliation. It's for the hard-hearted. Those who are divorced, remarried, unmarried, he comes to fix them. He comes to reconcile them. He condescends so that they might be reconciled to God. And a God this good, to condescend to this level, is worthy of our willing and happy submission then. In marriage, in all of life, because this is the character of our God. Moses continues to give some laws on marriage in chapter 24. It says in verse 5, this one's a little bit happier tone. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife with whom he is taken. And there's a footnote, maybe yours has it too, uh, that says to make his wife happy. In other words, the, the wife is absolutely in mind with this law. It, it's directed there. Perhaps this provision is given not just about the, the, the emotional feeling of happiness of the wife, although that's not inconsidered, but to perpetuate that happiness. In other words, to, to continue something good in their life. In other words, you know that when there's marriage, there's consummation, and from that become offspring and the continuum of the family line. And this would have been important for ongoing provision and protection for that wife that this law is aimed at. It would have been an ongoing matter of importance in the land where God allots certain lands to certain tribes, certain families. All this plays a part. And so perhaps that's the primary reason for the law. Moses continues in verse 6. 
No one then shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking life in pledge. So we've moved from one kind of marriage, and then we've now moved out to what are we doing in pledge to another. If these conditions are met, that there's no one that's taking this thing in pledge for them, a millstone would have been important for their ongoing continuation. So again, he addresses that. He wants to make sure that the vulnerable are taken care of, and maybe that's perhaps speaks into what's in verse 5 as well. This ongoing continuation of their good in the land matters. Now we're going to skip forward to chapter 25 and talk about the laws for marriage that are seen in 25 verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And then the elders of the city shall, cry, shall call to him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off his sandal, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who has had his sandal pulled off which apparently is a derogatory way to describe someone's home and their house. Notice the conditions that are laid out here. And if these conditions are met, then this law is ensuring that the widow here is not without, again, ongoing provision and ongoing protection. That this widow is not even left without heirs of her own family that can carry on the name of her husband. And again, this is no small matter. God gave the promised land not to any people, but to a particular people. He allots it out. Now, you might have read these portions in the scripture, or maybe you skipped over them. Like, all right, this is so-and-so gets this land, so-and-so. You're like, okay, we get it. Like, but that mattered to God. And he allotted it out to a certain people, to certain tribes, to certain families. And so the continuation of them in that land mattered. In fact, we could say, in part, this is due to the covenant that God made, that Moses, or that Moses is mediating, that he gave to Abraham, that they're going to get this land. A certain people is getting this land, and they're going to continue in it. Now, this law could be legally refused, it seems, although a refusal leads to public humiliation, as we read in verses 7 through 10, and a strong sense of social disgrace and disapproval are given here, and the widow in this situation, should this be refused, is cleared, and the brothers, the surviving brothers' selfishness is declared. So, choose your own desire over the family responsibility, and what happens here is some strong social disapproval and disgrace. Israel was to be a people that didn't live that way for their own desires over family responsibilities and over something bigger than themselves. They were to be a people who were always living for something bigger than themselves. That was the the clarion call in Deuteronomy chapter 6. What are you to be about? Loving God. Something bigger than yourself, something outside of you. That's what your life is to be set on. Love God with all of your heart, soul, and might, and love others as you love yourself. That sums up the law. They were to be a people that were living, not for their own desires primarily, but for the God, because they loved him with their whole hearts. Now, when you live for something bigger than yourself, it can be costly. 
and indeed this law, if they're going to live for something that's not just their own desire and their own name, if they're going to live for the name of another, it's going to cost them too. In ways, this law could be not so beneficial to the surviving brother. This is why it is rejected infamously a few times in the scripture. Now, this is before the law is given, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 38, there's a a similar story there of, of Judah, and he has some terrible sons. And one of them's name is Onan, and he was supposed to perform this rite for his brother's wife, and he refuses wickedly. And I'll let you read about that if you want, but he knew, and he says in this passage, that these children, this offspring won't be mine. And so he refuses to do what he knew should have been done. In Ruth, there's maybe a more clean example. In Ruth, the book of Ruth, there's a nearer relative than Boaz. And he too refuses. If you look in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 6, they're, they're kind of going through this ceremony where they're figuring this all out legally. There's even some sandal stuff going on in this passage as well. In chapter 4, verse 6, Boaz is, is trying to see if the closer relative is going to redeem Naomi and Ruth and her property or not. But listen to what this man does when he refuses. Here's what he says. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Now, why? He knew there's a cost here. I, lest I impair my own inheritance. And he knows it's going to impair my inheritance if I redeem this person. So you add to the fact that the offspring won't be named for you, that there's an inheritance problem that's going to cost you in those ways, and that you would have a significant investment into the property that's then going to belong to another, and you can understand that to, set, to accept this responsibility was a certain setting aside of your own best interest and looking to the interests of another. To accept this responsibility was to set aside one's own good for the brother's good and for that wife's good, for the family's good, for something bigger than themselves. It would be to live for something bigger and something else and to absorb the cost yourself. Onan refuses in a wicked way and God puts him to death. Ruth's nearest redeemer refuses, lest it impair his inheritance, and we never hear of him again. He is never named. He is not remembered. But you all remember the name of Boaz, if you've read of Ruth. He understood the cost. He understood the responsibility well, and he willingly accepts it. Listen to what he says in chapter 4 of Ruth. Chapter 4, verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Not his own name, another's name. He understands this, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. While Ruth's nearest redeemer is not known, never named, never heard of again, Boaz's name is listed in several places in the scripture and seems to find its way into the most famous genealogy ever written, the genealogy of Jesus. As Jesus said, Matthew 23, that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Boaz humbles himself. Yeah, it might not be my name, might not, might impair my inheritance, but this is the good and right way. He humbles himself and he's exalted. Whoever, it includes Boaz. And there's room for us in that 
proverb as well, or in that word as well, whoever. But there's room on both sides. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Our hard-heartedness would make us think that it's best to exalt myself. It's best to live for my own name. It feels good to receive praise and to be the one that receives all the attention. It feels more fun to compare ourselves to others when we're exalting ourselves because then we feel like we're above them and they're below us. That's a lot more fun than comparing when you're on the bottom. When we're self-exalting, there's boasting that's a little bit more easy, right? It comes naturally then, like look at us and what we've done. Whoever, we could fit into that. And whoever humbles himself is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Whoever lives for his own name is brought low, like Onan or Mr. So-and-so who's unnamed in Ruth. But whoever humbles himself is exalted. Whoever forgets himself to live for something bigger, God exalts such people. It's not those who save their lives, Jesus says, that actually gain life. It's those who lose their lives. For his name's sake that actually gain it. So which whoever do you fit into? Whoever, are you the whoever that exalts himself that one day will be humbled? Are you the whoever that humbles himself that you may be exalted one day? There couldn't be a more important question or answer because ultimately only one is exalted and the other one is humbled, brought low, finally and fully. Now within the context of marriage, that can be a great context to humble yourself for the good of another, to go down low for the service of your family and for the name that's outside of yours. But God's people, whether married or not, are always to be a people that are living this way in a sense that we are a humble people waiting for the Lord to exalt us, never taking that activity upon ourselves. In this way, God's people should always be ready then to serve for his fame, for his glory, for the good of others. Because we're not living for our own name. We're living for another. We're living for God. We're living for others. Now, the next set of laws show how Israel is to value and respect others in daily life, in their community. So flip back to chapter 24, verse 6. Again, I read this to fit into the context of what was going on, perhaps, with that law in verse 5. But let's read it again in verse 6. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Lending is completely okay, but the lending conditions are to be good. They're not to be harsh for those within the community. That's what a taking a millstone would be. It would be a harsh condition for lending. It would deny this person the ability to provide for themselves, to grind and make bread even. Daily bread is being uh, held back and restricted when you take a millstone. And so he says the conditions are to be favorable and good and actually dignifying to the person. Don't keep their millstone. They need to be able to provide for themselves, support their family. This is a way that they uphold the dignity of one another instead of undermining it. And these lending conditions aren't to make things harder, especially for the poor. And so this is why the laws are given. The, the poor aren't to be taken advantage of. You look in verse 7 of how we're upholding dignity and watching out for the most vulnerable. Verse 7 continues that theme. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The, the force of verse 7, although it lands as us, as a, another miscellaneous law, the force of verse 7 is not to be missed. And the penalty for it should show us the weight and the gravity of this command. 
One commentator calls this, what's going on in verse 7, social murder. You're, you're cutting a person off from rights, from responsibilities that they could have. You're cutting them off from covenant relationship with others. And so the death penalty is called for to purge the evil from their midst. Stealing of human life is treated more severely than theft of another kind, although this person is called a thief. They received the death penalty. Other kinds of thievery and other stealing wasn't. And what that is, is a value statement on humanity. This is a different level because we're talking about something different. We're not talking about property. We're talking about image bearers. And so within the people of God, this should not be known. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Now again, maybe perhaps this isn't our temptation to steal a man and to sell him off. But I wonder if we uphold dignity of one another well here. When we have in our culture ways of referring to another, one another that are less than dignifying, white trash. Where we treat one another as if they're less than human, like property. That's not to be known among God's people. There's a value statement being placed here on humanity. And it's to be upheld People are to be held in high regard. There should be evident valuing of people in the midst of Israel too. This theme continues, verse 8 and 9. Take care in case of leprous disease. To be very careful to do according to the Levitical priests as they shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out against Egypt. And I think that the dignifying thing here is to... Give proper respect and dignity to authority because this Miriam case is when she uh, kind of pushed back against the authority and leadership of Moses and God gave her leprosy. And so there's to be the proper dignifying of those that are in the right places of authority. It extends even further to neighbors and loans that we're going to see in verse 10. You, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. There's compassion and respect shown here. Uh, even a cloak sounds like a small matter. That could have been given as a pledge because there may not have been anything else to give in pledge, and that cloak may be the very thing that keeps that man warm at night, allows him to be able to sleep. And so again, it's not to be kept. So there's compassion and respect shown there. And how they interact with one another is to be part of, of righteous living within the land. Did you notice that it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord? Part of our right living is, is how we treat one another, how we live out these things. That's what Moses is saying for those in the land. That continues in, in verse 14. These are daily things for them. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be found guilty of sin. All right, so in other words, again, notice lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Or back in the other one, it's about righteousness before the Lord. Righteousness in the land. There's no righteous person then who's a jerk boss or treats others poorly. Like that, that should be clear to the Israelites. You are to be people that treat one another well. And so if you say you're living in a righteous way and you're being a jerk 
to the people that work for you, then you're not living righteously. You're sinning against the Lord. Again, there's an upholding of dignity of each person, even in work scenarios. Boss to employee, the way you make loans, all of these are to show dignity and compassion. Respect for those that they're around. There's to be just treatment. Look at verse 16. Fathers should not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice to the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, and the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I commanded you to do this. If there's a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, which judges were always to do to uphold justice, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to the offense. Forty stripes may be given, but not more, lest if one go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother is, what, degraded in your sight. And you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. These laws aren't just laws about lending or best business practices or what exactly, how many stripes to give in court. These laws are, every single one of them, are about how to treat people in daily circumstances. And and perhaps this is made really clear in verse 4 when he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Because to us, it's like, well, I don't know why we have to throw in an ox here and why treatment of an ox really matters. We're talking about, at least I've been saying, that's about treating humanity well. So why throw the ox in? But but you know that Paul picks this up. And here's what he says about Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So again, thinking about Deuteronomy, Paul loves him some Deuteronomy as well. Maybe it was Jesus' one of his favorite books. Paul seems to love it as well knows some of it by heart. Even these random laws, these miscellaneous laws, Paul knows them. Shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. So he's saying that, yeah, there's this law there that's about ox, but but it's about more than that. It's about treatment of people. There's a, a principle here. And notice then that we are to treat people with the right kind of dignity and respect, even an ox as it treads out the grain. Like, let it have some grain. And he's saying, that speaks to more than just an ox. It speaks to how we should treat people and we treat them well. And the motivation to treat others well, to treat them with dignity and respect for Israel, is a strong one and a simple one. Look in verse 18 of chapter 24. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Or look in verse 22. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The the motivation to treat others well, to love them, give them respect and dignity, and try to work for their good, not give them harsh conditions to work under and to live in in their midst, was their own identity, was their own history. They should be able to look 
on the vulnerable, on the, place, on the people that are in the, the toughest situations, on the poor, and they should be able to see something themselves. They were once in the most vulnerable position, under the thumb of an evil ruler, slaves in Egypt, without any money, without any way to make an end that they might want to get to. They were the helpless ones, but God, he jumps into the middle of this and he redeems them. And so now the, the ones who are slaves have then been redeemed. They're, they're taken out from underneath their slavery and harsh conditions and they're not just taken out. He allows the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians as they go. They were the poor ones and God changes their circumstances. He changes their status from slaves to free, from those who are poor to now you've plundered the Egyptians. And guess what? Here's the promised land that you didn't have any part in. I did this and it's an abundant place that will provide for you. So when they look on the most vulnerable situations, they need to be able to be able to see themselves and their own identity, their own history. These laws are in essence calling them to reflect the treatment that they received from God when they were in situations and circumstances just like these. Now to be effective in care for the most vulnerable and the poor, the key is what we just talked about. You shouldn't approach from on high. Instead, the most vulnerable is us. We were the slaves. We were the ones who couldn't get out from underneath our slavery to sin and death. We were the ones who are poor before God, completely bankrupt before Him, nothing to plead, nothing to offer Him for our own lives. We're the ones that are in need, needing His compassion, needing His mercy, needing His help. And so when you're in care for the vulnerable and the weak and the poor, we don't approach from on high, but it's those who are alongside, endlessly in need of God. And we share that with one another. Israel is to be like that. They're to be a people who have seen themselves in those kind of situations and how God mercifully pulled them out, not because of something that they were done, but because God chose them and He loved them. And in that way, they're to treat one another. And so too are the people of God. When we fail to see ourselves rightly, and we approach the most vulnerable or the poor from on high, as it were, then we're going to lack the right kind of compassion. We're going to lack the treatment of others with the right kind of dignity and respect that they deserve. We'll want to be their savior. Now we'll fix this problem. We'll come in and we'll be the saviors here. We want to look good in the midst of this. We'll, we'll descend from on high in order to look good for these people, but God's people are always people that want to point to someone else as a savior. They want to point to God. They're the ones that are always living not for their own name or for them to look good, but for God to look good, for his fame. And out of the overflow of what God has given to him, given to us, given to them, they should want to then give to others. Look at what God did to me, delivered me from. How could I not then want that for you? They're blessed to bless others. And Jesus is our example. He, he treats the vulnerable with such tenderness and kindness. The, the poor, the broken, the outcast, he treats them so kindly. Think of the lepers. And the untouchables. Jesus goes to them, speaks to them, touches them. Think of this bleeding woman. Again, comes to him, touches the fringe of his garment, and he turns to her and says, daughter. Think of the children that the disciples wanted to push away. He welcomes them and blesses them. 
or the 5,000 who come to him. He was unwilling to send them away lest they faint on the way home. He wanted to make sure they had listened to him well, that they got what they needed for the day, their daily bread. So he divides loaves and fishes to take care of them. Think while he's on the cross and his mother is in one of the most vulnerable positions that there could be, now losing a, a son. And he looks, when he's in anguish on the cross, looks and takes care and provides for his mother. He protects those who were predatory on the outcasts and on the poor and on the broken and on the ones that were the most vulnerable. So he is pretty hard on those who would come after them in a predatory way and would degrade them and their status. He wouldn't speak to them that way. He would always uphold humanity. He met their physical needs, but he is also always reaching for more. He, he tells the man who's dropped in front of him by his friends that is lame, he says, your sins are forgiven and also now you can walk so that they would know that I have authority to do that. Jesus, in daily circumstances, in daily scenarios, in daily interactions with the most vulnerable, refuses to dehumanize. He was unwilling to treat others without dignity and compassion. He is this one who we see as full of compassion for the most broken in society. And the good news is, is that in every one of those situations, as we see Jesus meet them with compassion, we can see a picture of our own lives. Because there we are, the most needy the most broken, the most in need of someone, God, coming to meeting, meet us with his mercy. And in all those situations, we see Jesus' very heart, a heart that was exposed that not just for those people themselves, but his heart for people. Jesus shows compassion, and that's his heart towards us who are in need of his compassion. And as he shows compassion, he then frees us up and empowers us to go do likewise, to care for the most vulnerable. And in kind of Matthew 25 style, Jesus tells about the sheep and the goats and he divides them. And you remember the difference is the activity, in a sense, of those sheep and those goats. The, the sheep were the ones who, when people were thirsty, in fact, he calls them the least of these. When the least of these were thirsty, he gave, they gave them a drink. And they were hungry, they were fed. And when they were sick, they, they came and visited them. They, they took care of the least of these because they'd been met in that same situation. That we look to the hungry and say, yeah, we were hungry. We were searching to be filled with all sorts of things, but nothing satisfied us until we met Jesus. We were the thirsty. We were looking for water, but we were drinking from broken cisterns until Jesus came along and his water satisfied us deeply. We were the sick and the broken and Jesus visited us in those places so that now that when we look at all those cases, out there, we see ourselves and we can move towards them in compassion and love the way Jesus did. So the question then is, how are we? How are we extending compassion and dignity to the most vulnerable around us? And I think what's clear with this law and these laws is that there are daily opportunities. Perhaps that's with business practices. Perhaps it's with how we loan or don't loan or, or even taking care of, of different disputes. How are we moving in compassion towards others? The, the vulnerable and the most vulnerable aren't to be neglected or taken advantage of. They're considered, they're, they're dignified, they're helped. And, and this upholding of human dignity may not look the same as it did then, but it should be evident among God's people always that we uphold the dignity and value of one another and we do it in certain ways, especially looking to protect the most vulnerable. Israel was to uphold that dignity and, and though not an entirely separate topic, they are to move to uphold justice as well in the land. 
Now, this is very mosaic here in Deuteronomy. He shifts gears very quickly, and uh, indeed he does so again here in chapter 25 as we move to another section of miscellaneous laws. We'll start with probably the most fun one in chapter 25, verse 11. When men fight with one another, and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him, and puts out her hand, and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. Now, I don't know about you, but there's not one part of this that, that sounds good. Like, it is all bad all the way through. <laughs> it's like, this is a very post-fall world. There's fighting, first of all. That's not, not great. Um, and then the, the fight kind of gets out of hand. One husband is beating the other, and then the wife gets involved. Now, I'm hoping that this law is addressing a situation that is hopefully rare. But we don't know. He doesn't give any more details. Now, this law doesn't seem to be first about immodesty or about fighting in an unfair way. Like, hey, if you're going to fight, you know, you don't throw elbows like this and make sure that no one creeps in and, and throws this special. It's not about that primarily. Perhaps a, a mirroring of the laws that were earlier in chapter 25, right before these are stated, the, the laws concerning marriage in, in chapter 25, perhaps it's a, a mirror of that in a sense. Uh, that is to say, uh, these law would be about the continuing of the family, uh, obviously an issue with this kind of fight that's going on. And again, that was no minor issue in the land. And so perhaps it's a mirroring of that kind of on the other side. This one was about providing for the woman. This was to make sure this man could provide offspring in his family. And so either way, we know that this is what it's called for. They likely would have understood exactly what they were talking about in these hopefully rare cases and would have been able to uphold justice in the right way should this case arise. He then moves to more upholding of justice and even the weights that they carry around. Verse 13, you shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and a fair weight you shall have. A full and a fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So again, these weights and measures would have been used in daily activities, buying and selling. And so fair and right weights were important for just and fair business dealings. They, they were there to prevent cheating and to get the right things from one another. God wants their daily dealings, their everyday matters to be under the right kind of law, under his reign and his rule with just laws, righteous living in the land. And lastly, he gives this law in chapter 17, or chapter 25, verse 17. Remember that Amalek did to you on the way, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. The Amalekites, their way of life, it cut against the very thing that the, the Israelites are to uphold in the land. They're to uphold human dignity and value and worth and respect and, and to treat one another fairly and with justice and to uphold justice. And here comes Amalek and his people, and they cut against all of that. Here, we, we don't even think that this is probably even described in the scripture what happens in this. It's possible that it's in Numbers or Exodus, but likely a different 
situation. And here's what they're doing. They're preying on the most vulnerable with unjust acts against them. So again, the very opposite of what God is calling the Israelites to uphold in community life with one another. They broke at the very core, the, the law that God is laying down for them, and they broke the core when they say, and here's what is described, did not fear God. That explains all the actions that they have from that point on. They didn't fear God. That was the core of what God has been calling the Israelites to in all Deuteronomy. Love, keep, fear. Fear God. And they didn't. And all these unjust acts then ensue. It also helps explain the actions that Israel is to take to uphold justice. It explains why in verse 19, when the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord God is giving you from an inheritance to possess, blot out this memory from under heaven. Israel then is in a sense to enact and be a means of enacting of God's judgment here. The executing of this judgment is a working not only to reject the Amalekites and their behavior, the things that they did, but to reject and to work against behavior like that in the land. Perhaps this example for them was specifically important because they would have brought to reality the behavior that is so dehumanizing in their midst. Perhaps they would have thought about family members that were lost in this attack as the most vulnerable are preyed upon. As this people was a people that at the core did not fear God. And so maybe this people listed here at the end of of chapter 25 is another encouragement, not only of treating other people rightly and upholding the dignity of one another, but also to, again, work towards fear of the Lord and walk walk in obedience to Him, lest you too face the judgment that Amalek has to face. You see, even when we think about Amalek or Israel and when they fail to uphold justice, here's what we know years later, God is saying, I'm not. God's going to always uphold justice. Nothing is going to fly under the radar with him. And that's no less true for them as it is for us now. In Romans chapter 2, Paul writes that he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immorality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Is there a more dramatic or evident display of God's wrath and justice than at the cross? Where we see in the person of Jesus, God's own Son, This is what sin deserves. This is what happens when you can't obey the law. This is what happens when you face the curse for sin. But God also looks out in that very place for the most vulnerable, doesn't he? It's at the cross where debts are paid and can be paid. It's at the cross where salvation is granted and can be granted. And it's at the cross that we see that this is Not for a certain individual, it's, again, opened up to whoever. The qualification is need. The one need to be relieved of your debts that you can't pay on your own for receiving of salvation is to see your need and to see that one on the cross as the only supply for that need. And those who come then find shelter and protection for them in their most vulnerable state. 
You see, what these laws in Deuteronomy can do is they can help look out for the most vulnerable in daily kind of interactions and community life. But they couldn't help protect from the most vulnerable state that you could be in, and that'd be death. Only God can protect in death. Only God can cover over that most vulnerable place of death. And he does it to those who see their need and turn to Jesus to fulfill that need. Together, as those who are saying that we trust in Jesus to not only have protected us in the most vulnerable place, but will be the one who protects us finally and fully to the end, we take a meal together. And in this meal, we remember something strange. We remember death. We remember how Jesus' body was broken, how his blood was poured out, so that our sins might be forgiven, our debt paid, so that we could receive salvation, and so that when we face death, it will be but the entrance to eternity with him forever. That's what we proclaim when we take this meal. So if those are things that you believe and trust in and have faith in, then you take this meal and do it with great joy and hope that Jesus is your protection in your most vulnerable place. If you're not a believer, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, we'd say you are under the wrath of God. You do deserve his justice and his judgment, just like I did. And the only way to escape that is through his son, Jesus. And we would call you instead not to take this meal but to repent and put your faith in him. Let's pray together.